Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Robin Hathaway Stephanie Sawyer Kitty McKeon George Clensos Michael Lamangelo with original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, episode five. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Seth Harwood from Jack Palm's Crime, Young Junius, and now... Crime Wave. You can find my stuff at SethHarwood.com. You're listening to Antithesis, book one, and this is the story so far. The cards have fallen, and they have fallen in the defector's favor. Joss Kyle, formerly National Security Advisor to the President of the United States of North America, has narrowly escaped the trap laid for him by bounty hunters Jim and Alyssa Hartman. As revenge, and to make sure he isn't followed, he's seen that their employer is informed of their failure to capture him, and he fully expects that employer to retaliate against the Hartmans post-haste. Meanwhile, Percy Scott, an intelligence operative who we last saw in the mountains of Ecuador, has finally gotten his long-sought vacation and reunion with his wife. Chapter 2 Loyalty and Other Deadly Treacheries (laughs) The Orange Orchard on Sidon was not open to tourists, but being a senator's daughter had its privileges, even off-world. Years ago, she'd heard the stories about the smells, the sight of looking up and seeing wheat fields in the sky, of how much richer the orange smell was when it saturated the atmosphere instead of being wafted away on the winds. (laughs) Marion closed her eyes as she walked through the orchard with her husband, marveling rather like a child at this self-contained world above the world. It was like visiting the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, or, indeed, ancient Sidon itself. The historical synergy wasn't lost on Marion, whose love of ancient civilizations ran as deep as her blood was blue. Like its forebearer, this city in the sky was the first commercial outpost on a vast, unexplored sea. The outpost of a new empire. Where most people saw an interplanetary bus terminal... She saw the movement of history. And she saw oranges. Oranges that were out of season right now back in Massachusetts. They were never really in season. But when she was freshly in love with a shockingly traditional young man, she had leaned up with her back to an orange tree in an orchard behind the finest Reformed Episcopal Church in Georgia and hiked her wedding dress up over her hips Her new husband had fed her orange wedges off the tree 
and knelt before her in ecstatic prayer and made love to her for the first time until the sweat and humidity soaked their clothes through. It was only blind luck that they finished before the wedding photographer tracked them down. If they'd been caught, she wouldn't have cared. He was her husband, and it was their afternoon, whatever the society marms tittered over while they waited for the reception to start. Ever since... She couldn't eat an orange without imagining that she tasted the extra tang of his tongue fresh from her cunny, pushing the wedge into her mouth as he shared it with her. And that was why she now walked with him hand in hand in this garden in the sky. They weren't allowed to eat of the fruit, but she didn't think anyone would really mind. She stopped under a tree weighted heavy with the ripe citrus and looked around. Her husband cocked his head at her quizzically, his half-smile mischievous beneath the brim of his Panama hat. Pick me an orange, Percy. He held her gaze and reached above his head without looking and pulled the fruit off the tree. He always knew exactly where things were, and he never bumbled or made a mistake. He was perfect. He pulled a folding knife out of his pocket and used it to score the skin, then peeled the layers back to reveal the tender flesh inside. He broke off a piece of the rind and held it under her nose. She drank the smell in and looked in his eyes, unblinking. Her toes curled. She felt herself gushing. He nodded his head at the tree trunk and she backed up and leaned against it, never breaking eye contact with him. She took his hat off his head and placed it on her own and hiked her skirt up for him, slipping her damp panties down to the ground. He looked down to see what she'd done, and she thought she caught a flash of disappointment when he met her gaze again. He always had been reticent, and they were together now for the first time in eight months. She supposed it was natural. But the discomfort passed, and he held the orange up in front of her and tore half a wedge from the rest of the fruit, slowly spraying her neck with its juice. He leaned close and licked it off, then kissed her. She moaned, floating on the euphoria of his touch again after so many months. The hat brim raked low over her eyes when she leaned her head back against the trunk. He knelt before her and buried his face in her curls, and she decided that she would never again go anywhere without an orange blossom in her hair. Phalanx. Unusual was not a term worthy of the goings-on in that place. Strange? Maybe. Illegal? Definitely. But whatever it was didn't keep the customers away. Much to the chagrin of its competitors, this unwholesome tavern was also the most popular. The best games, the most professional gamblers, and none of the dreck brewed from freeze-dried garbage that the other businessmen pawned off on the public as distillate. The only liquor you could find in Phalanx was brewed from real grains, or pressed from fresh fruit, or imported from the far corners of the solar system. The cigars were real tobacco. The games weren't fixed. It was the only place on half the station that sold real corned beef sandwiches. Nothing good comes without a price. Men disappeared in there without a trace. The bouncers were known for brutalizing anyone who stepped out of line. Despite its glamour and success, something went on in there that everyone talked about. 
Some called it the shadiest bar in the system. For others, it was a death trap. Station security did their best to ignore the traffic that passed through it, politely looking away as a man might do upon seeing a friend vomit. Whoever set foot inside left the protection of the station government. Phalanx was a law unto itself. Rumors would have the unsuspecting tourists believe it was a black market outlet, free from the eavesdropping devices and the bug's-eye cameras used by more respectable establishments. No one knew what really went on in there. Competitors called it a menace. Neighbors called it a problem. Hoods called it a haven. Joss Kyle called it home. Somehow it was more home than Washington had ever been. Here, Earth was another point of light, a little bigger than the rest, that rose and set out the windows on his floor every minute or so. Beautiful to look at, but then again, so was a jaguar, or Alyssa Hartman, or Cassie Orenthal. Achingly beautiful, like a bouquet of foxgloves. He'd grown used to living without beauty in his ears on the run for that very reason. It was nearly always a guarantee of treachery, a mask. This was the beauty he preferred. Wood trim, aged tobacco, good whiskey, no bullshit. Here, he was the boss. No complicated political agendas, no government looking over his shoulder, just a bar he won in a poker game, a flat to call his own, and a job to do. Under normal circumstances, he would have been hard-pressed earning the squeeze money he needed to keep his less legitimate operations running. After all, no mere tavern, no matter how successful, made that kind of money. But this was Nineveh, and Phalanx was no mere tavern. I want to raise a toast! The patron was none too steady on his feet, and a couple of bouncers moved to intercept him, just in case. To the freest port in the system! No Persians, no Americans, no Europeans, to hell with them all! Here's to freedom! The man dropped his snifter full of cognac down his gullet in a single swallow, then sat haltingly back down in his chair to the applause of his friends. Another man, older, drunker, and less diplomatic, stood up and raised a pint glass in the air. And fuck the loonies too! This proposal was met with a notably cooler reception, but the Toastmaster was far too busy trying to maintain his balance to take much notice. A woman at the table grabbed him by his lapels and tugged him back into his seat. Shut up, you old fool. The trade routes coming through here will make us a big target someday soon. She kept talking after that, but the conversation exploded around her and not even the people at the table could make out anything more. Standing beside the bar, Joss noted the reaction with pleasure. He'd been doing his part to encourage the right kind of business coming through Phalanx, and little by little, his ploys were working. Just as the prevalence of surveillance cameras had resurrected the hat industry, so too it had killed free speech, inch by inch. Not because anyone actually got arrested for speaking against the government, but because subconsciously people tend to behave guardedly when they suspect they're being watched. If his sacrifices were to mean anything, that had to change. Since his early days in grad school, he'd assumed the notion was akin to getting Baptists to embrace nudism. But little by little... Prod by prod, he was meeting his goals. 
People were speaking out, people were arguing, and the revolutionary spirit was growing. You can say what you want about the fucking Mars colony. You can say what Phalanx you was the place the he'd chosen as an incubator. The criminals and undesirables they shipped here from Luna were exactly the kind of people he needed. Joss looked around as he mentally ticked one sort or another off his list. Malcontents with no respect for authority, people with terminal cases of boredom, men and women squeezed out by the system, tax protesters, drug dealers, deviants, perverts. And this was where he stewed them all together, a fermenting vat for a special brew. A very red brew. He wiped down the bar, savoring the slick lacquer finish over the mosaic of apple and cherry wood tiles that had been painstakingly pieced together. It was a real wood finish in the one place in the known universe where there should have been no such thing. The rest of the bar broke out in song. A new, still unfinished variation on Danny Boy. what he'd been hoping for when he planted two of his people among the group. Joss smiled at the irony and choked down a lump in his throat. He'd been infected with what seemed like an impossible dream, something he'd forgotten since his days reading science fiction and ancient history as a boy. But now that the infection moved through him like a stiff drink, he smiled at the thought that he'd nearly passed it by. If he had known, when Cassie sat down beside him on the bench in Sidon, he probably would have killed her. At least he would have made other travel plans. He'd left home to get out of politics. His whole life before the run was spent behind a desk. Whether professor or analyst, the stark truth of the matter was that he was a bureaucrat, not a crusader. During his years on the run, he'd lost his armchair spread and grown accustomed to a constant level of adrenaline. But that didn't change his nature. He had, he realized, started teaching for a reason. He'd accepted the analyst positions for the same reason. It was the same reason that he'd found it impossible to resist her. Besides, it would have been somehow anticlimactic if he had gone on to Mars to work as a pioneer. There was no one sitting at the bar, so Joss reached under and pressed his middle finger to a print scanner, and a hidden panel slid aside. He reached inside and slid his hands around on the velour shelf until he felt the cool chill of ridges on the border of his secret treasure. His fingers moved up the glass, tracing the curves like the ribs and neck of a woman, and then curled around it and lifted it carefully. He tugged it free and held it up to the light, letting the rays stream through the liquid gold. No, he corrected himself. Gold is worthless next to this. With transport costs, each 750 milliliter bottle cost him upwards of a thousand credits, but the truth was, he would have paid much more. Alphonse! Take over for a while. Joss tossed the towel to his assistant, grabbed a PPD, a stylus, and a cross-cut faux crystal tumbler, and carried them with his bottle over to the booth in the corner. Uncorking the bottle, he held its mouth under his nose and inhaled deeply. It was no ordinary whiskey. It was unfiltered, cask-strength, 18-year-old single malt, brewed, distilled, aged, and bottled in the Scottish Highlands. It poured like maple syrup and tasted like butter and fire. 
It was the only thing he missed anymore about Earth, and he allowed himself a little each day. He pulled up the accounts on his PPD and started prepping for his weekly rounds. Running the numbers was second nature to him from his days as an analyst, so he let his mind wander as his fingers and eyes did the necessary work. As the dark amber coated his tongue like liquid sex, he found himself thinking of Cassie Orenthal. Oh, they had handpicked him from the beginning. She never told him as much, but it was the only way it figured. Cassie had laughably told him that she was from the Underground Railroad, and he'd been rattled enough to believe her. He should have known better. As soon as they were clear of the dock on Sidon, she took him by surprise. He was through the airlock and to the bridge by the time they were under 1G acceleration. He watched the retreat of Sidon on the view screen. The front viewport showed a uniform black curtain dotted by the occasional cross-traffic. Nothing terribly interesting. He shouldn't have been watching the screens. She pulled her gun before he could even let out a long sigh of relief. It was a mistake to think he'd finally won his way free. Caught at last. So much for the helping hand. He should have known better. But her treachery was not without its own delicious irony. Take a seat, Reuben. She wasn't quite stupid enough to smile, and he took a small comfort in that. He sat opposite her in the co-pilot's chair, looking down at her hand just far enough out of reach that he couldn't bat the thermal out of the way before she got a shot off. So, he reclined in the chair and put his hands behind his head, lazily snaking his left hand up his right sleeve and hooking his fingers through the polymer loop tucked within. Well, well, this is interesting. He made a show of looking her over, head to toe. You didn't save me from the Hartmans just to sell me back to the fucks in Washington. What makes you think that? She smirked triumphantly. You could have just killed them. For that matter, you could have just killed me. There's no respiration requirement in the warrant. Very slowly, he started to pull on the loop, playing out the razor wire centimeter by centimeter. Fair enough. She fingered the trigger guard for a moment before lowering the weapon to her lap. Now that I've got your attention, I have an offer for you. You might even find it intriguing. I'm listening. Another 30 centimeters. Some friends of mine have been looking for you. They think you can help us out. Close friends? Uh, let's say we have a common interest. All right, let's hear it. What's the deal? Ten centimeters. Then she was his. We need someone like you on Nineveh. We have friends that go through there who will have information that we need vetted. It's the kind of information you are uniquely qualified to help us with. You'll be safe, well-paid, and completely out of reach. Of everyone but you. Naturally. She smiled playfully. But we want you breathing. There isn't another resource like you alive. Of course, if you don't fancy selling out your old friends... She let the words hang in the air for a moment, then continued coldly. I can always use the reward. Spill it, Cassie. Why do you need working knowledge of American strategy? Joss knew the answer, but he wanted all the cards on the table before he killed her. The wire was all played out, and Cassie overplayed her hand. She grinned broadly and turned back to her control console, reciting to herself, A line of black that bends and floats on a rising tide like a bridge of boats. The instant her eyes were off him, Joss made his move. Quickly, like a striking cobra, he sprang from his seat in a single motion and slipped the garrote around her neck. <coughs> he pulled, letting it bite into the soft flesh of her throat just enough to pin her. She jumped, 
Her gun fell clattering to the deck plates. He looked at her reflection in the viewport in front of her and saw in her eyes the deadly realization that she had underestimated him. She reached up and grabbed for his chin, trying to push her fingernails into his throat, his eyes, anything she could reach, but she couldn't get any leverage. Joss slowly squeezed tighter until the wire drew blood. Then she did something he wasn't expecting. She stopped struggling, dropped her hands, and craned her neck back, pushing her larynx harder against the garrote wire. He looked down into her defiant eyes and saw the arrogance still there. This one wouldn't give in. She might break if tortured. Everyone eventually did. But as he looked into the unspoken dare in her haughty eyes, he knew that there would never be a clear victory over this woman. He couldn't tell whether he was elated or terrified, but he'd found out what he wanted to know. A jaw slackened his grip enough to let her breathe. <laughs> you should know I don't make choices like that. She shuddered against the garage as he breathed the words into her ear. He leaned in closer and whispered, You saved my life. Now we're even. He let go of the garage. Cassie lurched forward against her console and coughed once, but before she could lay her hands on a weapon, Jaws drew his sig and held it to the base of her skull. Pick up the pistol. She didn't move. Pick up the pistol or you'll be forcibly retired. Moving very slowly, she reached down between her legs and grabbed the thermal in her left hand. He stepped slowly back, making sure he stayed visible in the reflection so that she wouldn't make the mistake of thinking she could get the drop on him. She sat up straight again, just as slowly. Don't have the stomach to strangle me? Her voice dripped with scorn. <laughs> You'd rather shoot a woman in the back than watch her eyes bulge while you squeeze the breath out of her. Turn around. She turned slowly to face him, her gun leveled straight at his groin, her eyes stabbing through him with cold fury. He met her gaze with equal intensity. If you think that about me, you don't know me well enough to be worth my time. If you cross me again, well, you'll discover what I do to people I think are trying to sell me out. She blanched slightly and then covered it up. So, she has read the reports. She knows. I won't make deals at gunpoint, and I won't take a deal when I don't know who's behind it. My name is Joss Kyle, and you would do well to remember that. Now, start talking. Cassie regarded him for a long moment, then put her thermal back in her pocket. Well then, Joss, let's do this in a civilized manner, shall we? She stood up and went to a cabinet next to the sink and pulled out two packets of freeze-dried coffee. There's a lounge behind this door. Do you take cream or sugar? Black. Is the terminal open? Yes. Joss went to the comm terminal and started to compose, keeping one eye on Cassie as she prepared the coffee. The smell tugged at his mind while he wrote, making his tongue swell. Before it was in his hand, his mouth was already trying to wrap around it. He finished his letter to the Hartmans, closed the terminal, and followed her through the door. It wasn't so much a lounge as a bower. The lines were spare, the space was cramped, but the decadence and the colors left no doubt about her definition of civilized. She handed him his coffee and asked her, How long till we get to Nineveh? Two weeks. I'm going outside the normal trade lanes to keep off the radar. She sat down on a large sofa and set her weapon down on the end table, nodding at the far end. He took the invitation and sat down. Her ship suit hung loose and open from her collarbone, imperious as Cleopatra. There's plenty of time to answer all your questions. She eyed him evenly, and he wasn't sure whether she was planning to kill him or ride him. She had style. <laughs>
Joss let the last drop from his tumbler sit on his tongue, the buttery, numbing warmth spreading through his body like a woman's touch. After years of wandering, he was home. He had his cause, he had his bar, and he had his skin. He stood up and went to relieve Alphonse. He'd stand the last shift before he closed up to make his rounds. He stowed the bottle, bringing his hand to his nose, wafting the fingers past as he inhaled, savoring the last tantalizing moment. It was smoky, spicy, and burned his nostrils just a little bit. Like burnt toast and rubbing alcohol smothered under butterscotch. Add some lemon, and it would smell like Cassie. Doug Reeves stabbed the page button. Anything else before I leave for the day? Yes, your honor. His clerk's face appeared on the teleconference screen. Judge Drakeland asked if you could handle some of the deportation overflow. I am dropping the letters of transit in your box right now. Forty-five people outbound for Nineveh needing approval. Thanks, Hakeem. I'll finish this up. Go ahead home. Doug grabbed a grape from the fruit tray on his desk and tossed it lazily into the air, enjoying its slow tumble in the low lunar gravity before it hit his expectant tongue. He stretched out his limbs, loving the ease with which stiff joints shook out in the place. The great goddess of the night was kind to tired bones. He'd been living and working in Luna long enough that the novelty should have worn off by now. Hell, most immigrants acclimated within the first week and stopped noticing it when their muscle mass decreased after a few months. Doug had been here a year and a half, and every morning when he nearly floated out of bed, he took a moment to marvel. <laughs> Nineveh. Always Nineveh. The corporate alliance that owned the place was hungry for labor. Thirteen months ago, they'd pressurized it, and already there was a shortfall. Wages were high, and they were willing to take on anyone who could hold a gun or run a cargo manifest, even thieves or other slightly less than murderous felons. It was the Australia of the sky, swallowing up everyone it could like a great fish between planets. In exchange for Nineveh's pledges of support, the board had decided to allow criminals bound for deportation back to their home nations on Earth to appeal the transfer order for a change in destination. Now, weeks into drowning in the extra appeals that the new law generated, Doug regretted speaking in favor of it. Still, it was better to have Nineveh populated and have as many viable colonies as possible when the Resolution of Confederation, what the media was calling the Free Skies Treaty, went through. The Resolution, another thing to juggle. Doug put his appeals on hold and dashed off a quick email to the Secretary of the Lunar Board of Directors, the governing body he sat on by virtue of his judicial rank. Hopefully, the board secretary would bump the resolution up to the top of the agenda for this month's meeting. As he worked, the sun streamed through the daylight conduit into the rough-hewn stone office. During the half-month-long lunar day, millions of small fiber-optic conduits on the surface piped natural sunlight to the heart of the capital city mined 500 meters deep in the lunar rock. The judiciary complex was polished to a marble-like shine, all except for his office. Upon his appointment to the position, Doug requested his walls be left unpolished. Chatter marks from the pneumatic drills etched themselves in half-spirals from floor to domed ceiling like fragments of DNA. And they would, so long as this was his office. It was his continual reminder of the human element of his job. Justice was an art, and an inexact one. The only polished surface was his desk. 
He finished up the last of the petitions and sent them along. Another couple dozen residents would be shipping out for Jonah's Bane in a few days. Well, named after Jonah's Bane anyway. He chuckled. There were certain metaphors that one couldn't escape growing up with a classical education. Someday he'd have to see the engineering marvel for himself. He stood up and surveyed the office once again, feeling buoyant in the low gravity and smiling privately to himself. It was his secret delight, and he allowed himself an uncharacteristic bounce as he left his office. The moon might be a harsh mistress, but she was the first step on the next great leg of the journey. The now familiar lightness lifted his spirits more than it lifted his acclimated body. It was, he supposed, the reminder that he had finally gotten off-world. You've been listening to Episode 5 of Antithesis, Book 1, Predestination and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music for Antithesis written by Danny Shade and is used here with permission. This episode starred Robin Hathaway as Marion, Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, George Clinsauce as Doug Reeves, Michael Lamangelo as Hakeem and the Second Drunk, and Kitty Nakian as the woman in the bar. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2008, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. We're now out of Earth orbit and into the outer colonies, and we're not looking back. I don't have a lot of time for banter this week as I'm buried in work. Really, really, it's a good thing. I run my own business. Buried in work is good. But I wanted to put the early word out that I'm going to be at Steampunk Con in San Jose, California on Halloween weekend. I'm not going in any official capacity, um, at least not yet. But I will be there passing out free CDs and generally having fun. So if you're going to be there, please look me up. You can find a picture of me on my website on the bio page. I got some great feedback this week, but I'm holding it for next week when I have more time to address it. Keep spreading the word and listening. There's a lot more great story coming soon. Remember to, you can email me at dan at jdsawyer.net and you can leave feedback on the blog or on the antithesis line at 206-350-2340. Questions, attaboys, criticisms, and death threats are all welcome, but if you follow through on the death threats, I will have to kill you. Or at least die trying. And until next week, have we seen the last of Allie and Jim Hartman? Or does their story still have more to tell? What will Joss's new alliance with the Lunar Resistance Movement mean for his safety? Who is Cassie Orenthal anyway? And why did she go so far in securing Joss's loyalty? What does Doug Reeves have to do with all of this? Or Marion Shelley, for that matter? Find out next Thursday. And remember... It isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.